0: Hello, fam. Today, it is Wednesday, March the 25th, 2020. So much has happened in our world since the last time we were together two weeks ago. Wow. It has been a roller coaster for me, a reality check for most, a time for us to evaluate our values in life and what is important to us, and most definitely a tremendous shakeup of uncertainty. There are a lot of questions and not a lot of concrete certain answers out there right now about what our future holds. That is why I'm dedicating the show over the next few months to take a deep dive into how we can prepare physically, mentally, and emotionally for what's to come. I am also prepared to release episodes weekly as opposed to bi-weekly during this time to give you up-to-date and current information, tips and tools from credible sources because we are all in this together. But before I get into today's show, like many, many Canadians and hardworking small business owners in the world, I am now in a tough position as I have taken a huge hit and have essentially been laid off. My future is uncertain and I'm leaning on the support of my community in a number of ways. If you are in a position to support the show financially, please donate to my Patreon account. You can do this in a couple of ways. The first is by going to www.patreon.com. That is www.p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, and searching my name, Elisa Kurilowicz. The second is to click a direct link to my account, which is long and complicated. So you can find this link in my Instagram bio and in these show notes. This financial support means the world to me, and will help me during this time to continue to podcast and share information, important and inspiring information to the world. This show has always been and will continue to be a free podcast for everyone to be a part of. If you are not in a position to support the show financially, there are still ways you can offer your support. You can share the show in your social media, for example. You can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, and you can just do what you're doing right now. Listen and learn. That being said, let's get into the meat of this episode. It is so, so good. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Ray Dionandan. Now, Dr. Dionandan was put on my personal radar after I read a published article of his titled, COVID-19, The End Game. Dr. Dionandan is an epidemiologist and professor at Ottawa University, and this particular article has been read over 80,000 times. Pretty amazing. Its popularity, in my opinion, is because of his comprehensive prediction of what is actually going on in the world, what we need to expect here, and how this virus is predicted to play out. In other words, what is the end game? After reading the article, I finally had a sense of what we, the globe, and individuals are in for in terms of timeframes for lockdown, what to expect in two to four months from now, and how long we need to hunker down and be unified in social distancing. Is this the new normal? Let's find out over the next 50 minutes as I introduce to you one of my most credible and relatable sources regarding the coronavirus Dr. Ray Dionandon. All right, so, hi, how are you today?
1: I'm very good, thank you very much.
0: So, let's talk about um, how you're actually doing, like, how are you doing with all that
1: is happening right now? <laughs> well, I, I gotta be honest with you, uh, I'm an optimist by nature, I'm a happy guy, mm-hmm. which drives my girlfriend crazy, okay. but um, last week, when, when I first started looking at the numbers, yep. I got a little down. And uh, I was down for a couple of days, and she got worried. And so we had a long talk about it. And I realized, you know, this is an opportunity to, uh, to put our skills into practice. Yes. The, uh, the way I look at it is uh, society has spent a lot of money educating me health professionals students that i deal with and now's the time for society to get a return on investment of our skills (laughs) in epidemiology and public health and so forth and then when i started taking a deeper look at the numbers i realized there might be ways out of this this is not doom and gloom necessarily yes Uh, things look odd things look uncomfortable but it doesn't it's definitely not the apocalypse but that in perspective right away to answer your question i'm doing great now there are a couple of days when man this is this sucks uh yeah
0: it kind kind of seems like a roller coaster of emotion for a lot of people i mean as an epidemiologist okay i had to google what that was i knew (laughs) sort of what it was i was thinking of like epidemics or like pandemics or whatever yeah so maybe just for the listeners what sure what do you do
1: I got to say, like, I actually wrote a book on this topic, and the first chapter is, you know, what is an epidemiologist, and the book is called Nothing to Do with Skin, because everyone thinks we're dermatologists, because they think epidermis. In Interesting. fact, um, uh, my my PhD supervisor, she was stopped at the border once, and they wanted to know if she had any uh, dangerous insects on her, because they thought she was an entomologist. And then people <laughs> asked me my opinions on words, because they think I'm an etymologist. So uh, it runs the gamut. Now, though, from this point on in human history, no one will ever ask again what we do. <laughs> now, this is our time to shine. Okay. So, an epidemiologist studies epidemiology. Epidemiology is the study of the determinants of disease, that's the official definition. Okay. And the determinants of disease are things that lead to a disease state. It can include the icky medical things like a virus or a bacteria. It could also include things like your age, your demographics, your, um, your socioeconomic status, uh, where you live, and the history of the science, if I can give it to you quickly because yeah. I'm always a great advocate for what we do. Please. It begins in Victorian England when a man named John Snow, not the one who knows nothing and <laughs> kills dragons, a the, the man named John Snow examined data about the cholera epidemic in London And he looked at a a neighborhood and plotted the cases of cholera geographically of a neighborhood and figured out that they were all being serviced by the same water pump and figured out that Mm. cholera was a waterborne disease. And as a result, they were able to target that one water pump, the Broad Street pump. In fact, if you go to London, there's actually um, a monument to the Broad Street pump. Mm. Uh, The the birth of epidemiology begins this neighborhood. So in other words, John Snow used a non-medical mathematical method to learn something about a disease that no one knew anything about and was able to stop the epidemic without knowing anything about bacteria or viruses or pathogens of any kind or or how they travel or how they infect you. He just knew this pump is the source. We can stop it by addressing the determinant of the cause, not the cause itself. So the, the yeah. science has grown in mm-hmm. the century since um, to incorporate a variety of things. When you read in the paper things like... Um, The Mediterranean diet reduces your risk of cardiovascular disease by X percent. An epidemiologist figured that out. We looked at the numbers. We did some math. We computed an association. Uh, When when physicians talk about epidemiology, they're usually talking about a description of the distribution of a disease in a population. But it's more than just that, as we are discovering now. It's also understanding the spread of diseases temporally in time. It's understanding um, uh, how to uh, make population interventions and controls in order to address that spread of disease. One of our great triumphs, well, a couple of our great triumphs, one of the first ones was HIV. So early in the HIV AIDS epidemic, before we knew about HIV, we knew AIDS was a thing. We didn't know it was viral or what was causing it. Sure. The Epidemiologists figured out that, well, it's affecting the three H's, mostly uh, Haitians, hemophiliacs, and homosexuals. That's what it was called back in the 80s. And 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 from that bit of information, we were able to figure out it's probably a virus, it's probably bloodborne, and it's probably not airborne. And they're right. And another big um, uh, success was in uh, cancer and tobacco. So for the longest time, we would uh, hear things like, well, there's no proof that smoking yep. causes cancer. And you oh, know yeah. what? There really isn't any solid proof, depending on what you mean by proof. The real rigorous idea of proof has to do with the randomized controlled trial and to prove that smoking causes cancer you need to find a bunch of five-year-olds and you make them smoke for 15 years and another bunch of five-year-olds and you prevent them from smoking 15 years and 15 years later you see how many of them got lung cancer right. that's the only way we really prove it but epidemiologists figured out there are other ways we can draw correlations associations um, other kinds of methods of expressing causality, and that changed the course of, of modern history because by by being able to prove that smoking caused lung cancer, we turned the avenue of public health towards a certain direction. So to bring it back to the crisis today, the role of the epidemiologist again, is to figure out who's getting sick, why they're getting sick, in what circumstances, and what we can do to address those determinants even before... We know about what the virus is, or its DNA sequencing, or all this other stuff. We can get in there early from a public health perspective and, and make important changes to protect the population. Wrong answer.
0: Well, but, I really, I really <laughs> liked <laughs> your <laughs> analogy. For I, I like your yeah. analogy uh, there. It was really easy to understand, and I mean, excellent storytelling examples there which is one of the reasons that you came into my radar in the first place. You wrote an article called COVID-19, What's the End Game? And as I was reading it, I just felt like it really resonated. I was I was able to understand. I mean, right now we're getting bombarded with a bajillion messages from across the world, from across the social platforms, from news to, I don't know, biased news to non-biased news to who knows what, when, where, how. It seems like... There's a lot of shit, (laughs) I'll just say, (laughs) out there. Um, But when I read your article, What's the Endgame? I realized that that's sort of, that's kind of something that everyone wants to know. Like, what are we in for here? And what does this mean? Everyone kind of says, I don't know. I don't know. Um, So the article was very impactful. I would love to talk to you about it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'll tell you though I wrote it um, out of my personal concerns and frustrations okay. when I looked at the data, and then I get a typical number of readers on my blog of about 200 per article. This one's been read over 70,000 times.
0: I now. I believe it. I believe oh. it. I mean, it's an it's awesome and uh, and very um, a lot of science journals or articles are very um, challenging for just regular Joe Schmo people to understand. It was so well-written. Very good. Very oh, good. You. <laughs> um, basically, you start by saying that, you know, this is the new normal. And in over the past week, there has been un- uncharted waters, this global pandemic with all of these things happening. What does this mean? Like, what do you mean by this is the new normal?
1: Some degree of isolation. Mm-hmm um has to be maintained for the foreseeable future the horizon of that future is anywhere between one and two years and that's determined that's limited by the projected development time of a vaccine and of course there's a big push on to develop a vaccine but vaccines are limited in how in how fast we can make them we can actually sequence the virus's DNA fairly quickly. We can get uh, candidate vaccines out and running in a matter of days. And we can rush through FDA legislation. We can rush through all kinds of uh, uh, mass production barriers. But you can't get past the fact that you need several months to trial the vaccine through the full disease cycle. So that's a hard limit on okay. how qu- quickly you can, you can create the vaccine. So are people so, creating uh, vaccines right speaking, now?
0: Sorry, sorry um, to no, interrupt sorry, you. Wait, are, are there vaccines being created right now?
1: Oh yes. Oh, there are at least three being trialed with formal clinical trials. Okay. Um, uh, at least one of those is in China. I think one of those is in the U.S. And there's only three that I know of. I'm sure there are others. Yes. In Canada right now, in the University of Saskatchewan, they're they starting animal testing on another candidate. So um, yeah, there's a full pre- full court press. Let me be clear for the listeners here: those who are in despair. I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic because I see, um, I see everyone doing their part, and I see the awesome power of civilization's biotechnology sector singularly focused on this one goal, yeah. which is kind of inspiring to watch. So um, I have a lot of faith that a vaccine will be available in 18 months or two years, you know. But even before then, there are things that are in development, are a lot of treatments in development. I mean, the WHO... Has an enormous trials platform right now where they are organizing global trials of at least six possible treatments that are promising. And that's not including the other trials happening uh, privately in in corporate labs and university labs that aren't part of the WHO platform. So literally scores, dozens, possibly even hundreds of possible treatments are being rushed into service right now. So we never know what's going to happen. But my way of thinking is I don't bank on that being our deus ex machina salvation. Yes. Once you start expecting technology to save you, it's almost like praying to a god. Yes. There are things you can do now to make this manageable. My argument is, and always has been, that this is not a health crisis per se, it's a health systems crisis. Interesting. And the reason I say that is um, previous pandemics, the bad ones, like, bubonic plague was obviously the one that comes to mind when we think about uh pandemics destroying civilization Mm -hmm. uh it the infectivity was very high the lethality was very high we have people literally bringing out your dead on a wheelbarrow at the end of every week you know and that was a health crisis there was no way to treat these people there's no way to have avoided it this the reason that this is causing so much chaos and concern is that it might overwhelm um, Overwhelm our healthcare system. Yes. That's the the primary reason we are concerned for this. When the health system collapses, that's when people start to die of other things, like you, you don't get the care you would get if you had your heart attack or your stroke or you break your leg or you sure. car crash your car. That's the secondary um, casualties from pandemic. So the first set of casualties are those affected by the disease itself. But the health system aspect of this is making sure that everyone else continues to get their proper care for your, your diabetes and your cardiovascular issues and your reproductive issues and things like that so our plan the plan that every every major nation in the world has is to slow the disease down long enough such that the health care system never gets saturated and that saturation point in Canada absolute top limit is we do not fill our 57,000 hospital beds. It's as simple as that. We only have 57,000 beds in Canada. The USA only has about a million beds. Right. For their 300 million population. And that sounds like a lot. It really isn't. So, and not everyone will get hospitalized either, but a significant proportion will.
0: That's also assuming that the hospital beds are open. Too because, yeah, we have 57,000 yeah. beds in Canada, but I know someone in the hospital right now that has an unrelated disease, and I'm like, you know, so we forget that.
1: That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I, I, I set my limit at a thousand beds, honestly. Um, my right. assumption is, you know, 47,000, well, 56,000 are um, already occupied to some extent right. that's not true by the way, it's probably closer to you know a quarter um, But that's I'd like to keep our, our total hospitalization numbers from this disease below 100, so that's why in the, in the model that I presented in my blog post with extreme lockdown you can get it down to about 70, 70 hospitalizations and, and keep it there that's not very newsworthy so to, to mm-hmm. back it up a bit, why is it a health systems crisis? Um, in my opinion the distinction between a health crisis and a health systems crisis is a health crisis is literally you're looking for a cure. Yeah. That's, that's what gets you out of it. A health systems crisis, you can manufacture your own way out of it. You can manufacture it with leadership, resources, planning, and management. And that's what we're doing now is trying to accomplish that feat. We probably could have avoided being here mm-hmm. if we had locked down early, and I mean a lockdown, not isolate, lockdown, and right. that would drive the, um, the doubling time from uh, a couple of days to five, six, seven, eight, maybe 10, 14 days. The doubling time is how long it takes the number of cases in your community to double. It's as simple as that.
0: Okay.
1: And That determines how quickly we're going to ramp up to that saturation point. If a doubling time is low, then we can manage this thing, not a problem. So that's why I'm, I'm more optimistic and not panicking as much as I was earlier in the week is right. now that there's political will and understanding, there is the ability and a pl- path forward to get us out of this safely.
0: And we're watching other countries around the world right now. I'm I'm witnessing Canada seems to be learning from some of the decisions the leaders have made in other countries. I mean, not to put anyone out in to the spotlight here but you know we looked at italy we saw what happened in italy and france and then now in britain the prime minister of in britain he's made some interesting choices from just let everyone have it to now let's lock it down so in your blog post you talk about how we're going to overcome this that there's two ways for a population to become immune can we um move into that direction
1: there is the way this ends it ends the same way regardless of what path is taken it ends with global herd immunity herd immunity is when enough people in the population are immune to the disease such that those who are not immune will never be exposed to it anyway okay so we achieve that with loud diseases Right. We, we see with measles, for example, you vaccinate enough, enough kids with measles, the ones who aren't vaccinated never experience it, which is why we get the anti-vaccination movement. People don't realize that your neighbor is a vaccinated kid is why your kid does not have measles. It's not because you have a super kid of some kind because of all the kale you've had. Okay. Because, you
0: know, yeah, you, you, t- you talk about cows like in a herd. Can you give that analogy?
1: Sure. So the word herd immunity, in my opinion, comes from the metaphor of a cow herd. So if you look at a herd of cattle wild cattle when was the last time you saw wild cattle i don't know but if you can imagine <laughs> wild cattle walking down the ravine the way they organize themselves are the infant calves and the weaker members of the herd are in the middle and the strong cows and bulls are on the outside so when a predator comes to attack the herd the strong members of the herd deal with that predator such that the ones on the inside the weak ones not only never deal with a the predator they never even know the predator exists in the first place So that's the idea here of herd immunity, we metaphorically protect those who are weak or non immunized by keeping them within this middle of the of the immunity population group. So the goal or the way this ultimately ends is when most people um, have immunity. So what is that number? It varies from disease to disease. I mentioned in the blog post that with smallpox, the number was 80%. We had to get 80% immunization for the population so that no one ever got smallpox again, and we eradicated smallpox from the face of the earth as a result. We committed genocide against that particular pathogen. Yeah. So with this disease, the, the assumption so far is somewhere between 60 and 70% immunity is needed to achieve herd immunity, mm-hmm. and that can either be achieved by the vaccine, which I mentioned is two years away,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or by everyone getting it. Okay. So the original plan that supposedly the British government had, and this is unconfirmed if in fact this is yep. what they had, um, was let everyone just get the disease and we'll get herd immunity at 70%. But what they didn't take into consideration was the raw infectivity of this virus. Yes, the, the lethality, the case fatality rate, we call it, is low. The case fatality rate is um, if you get the disease what are the chances you'll die of it yeah that's about two to three percent right yeah. now of this disease the case fatality rate varies from country to country because a better health care system can prevent you from dying gotcha okay and and, and right and, and weaker populations will likely die so it does vary in general we think the true case fatality rate is probably you know one okay. percent but let's say it's one or two or three percent uh if enough people get the disease 1% or 2 or 3% of your population is a pretty big number. Yeah. Right? It is a so big number. So the American population, 1% of 300 million, right? So it, it adds up fast. Yeah. Okay, let's take the Canadian case again. 37 million Canadians. Yes. 70% of, of 37 million is like something over 20 million, 22 million people. And a proportion of that will, will die from that case fatality rate, a very high number. So, in other words, it's the combination of infectivity and this very low case fatality rate that causes the crisis. That's why this just let everyone get the disease argument is insane. Yeah. Um, Other reason it's insane is that the course of the disease is so short and the infectivity is so large that everyone is likely to get it at around the same time. So the entire population getting it within like a two, three, four month period means that all those deaths happen around the same time. Yes. So that's an incredible assault on our system. We can't do that. So um, in my ethical opinion, that option is out the window. The other option is the one we have now, and that is this mitigation strategy is everyone stays inside such that we don't see anybody else. So if. You have the disease; you're less likely to give it to somebody else. Yeah. And if someone walking down the street has it, you're less likely to get it. Keep in mind, this isn't to save your life necessarily, because you're not—you're probably not going to die from it. Yes. Let's get that straight, because the—you know—the mortality is so so low. Eighty-seven uh, percent recover fine with mild symptoms. Okay. Um, the idea behind this isolation is to lengthen that time again between du- uh, that doubling time. Okay. From currently three to five days to ten days, two weeks, and beyond. That's the idea: just to lengthen that doubling time. To we call that the reproduction number, the number of people that one infected person can infect. Yes. Right. Currently, it's about two point five. Yes. So one infected person tends to infect two and a half other people. Right. the The goal is to get that number below one.
0: Okay. Yeah. I heard no, it was an R3. No, no, no. Someone was saying it was an R3 and I was like, oh my goodness, this is going, this is getting out of control.
1: <laughs> yeah. So keep in mind, like measles had an r not of 14 or so back in the days before the vaccine. Right. right. So that's, that's a crazy epidemic, 14. Yeah. That's why you need measles vaccines. So 2.5, you know, isn't that crazy except that this is, A highly infectious and uh, problematic disease and there's a lot of evidence that people are infectious while they're asymptomatic meaning that you can be giving it to somebody else even before you've got any symptoms that's one of the reasons it's so dangerous one of the reasons that you can't be uh, be confident that someone doesn't have it just because they're not showing any signs of sneezing or coughing or something by the time they are it's probably too late to have protected their loved ones in my opinion Yes. so that's why this isolation is so important. Now there's a difference between this the mitigation that we're under now and the suppression that okay. needs to happen. Mitigation is you know, social distancing, what we're doing mostly.
0: I, I actually want to sto- I want to stop you right there because I want to talk about social distancing really quickly because it seems to me okay. that the the people don't really get what that actually is. I mean, it's it if you just literally listen to the words, You can figure it out. But I mean, I see people running and walking and grocery shopping together and people are saying don't be in groups more than or more than 10. Other countries are saying more than two. Um, So why aren't people taking this seriously?
1: actually that's two I questions take it seriously but... because they're getting some interesting mixed messages okay uh, uh, and it took me a while honestly before I started taking it really seriously my you know my girlfriend's a physician and she gave me a good lecturing about this and so mm-hmm. I now take it very seriously we we live like our house is a is a space station mm-hmm. and the front door is the airlock yeah. and when I go out to walk our astro dog I come back in <laughs> and we decontaminate and uh, you know, everything's wiped down, my keys, my phone, yeah. and immediately wash everything down. And Even the dog gets washed, his feet gets washed and everything as soon as we come back in. We take no chances. The groceries are left at the garage door and they're brought in to a separate entrance yeah. where they're decontaminated as well. I mean, we take this very, very seriously. Yes. Maybe it's over the top, but I don't think so anymore. I, I used to mock her when yeah. she started doing this. Yeah. But now I'm thankful that she started doing this because it was the right thing to do. If we treat every opportunity for infection as a legitimate opportunity for infection, then that's the best way to control this. So social distancing was the first step of of slowing this down. And that's a mitigation approach. Lengthen that doubling time. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, and the opinion of uh, uh, many other epidemiologists, not all, uh, a lockdown was needed early on. Lockdown is not mitigation. Lockdown is suppression. So a lockdown isn't so much social distancing, like going to the pub with five of your friends. A lockdown is going nowhere, allowing this not to spread at all. And the reason that I advocate for it is we can get that reproduction number, not just below one, but down to something like 0.3. According to my calculations, it should be 0.3, but other people will get a different number. Get it down to something that low, and we can... Uh, really relieve the the healthcare system of the crisis is under now, and then we can deploy, in my opinion, other public health tools. What tools? Testing, tracing, and isolation, just for those who are testing positive. So in my, my latest blog post, I, I lay out my plan for that. Um, okay. Instead of spending... Instead of losing billions of dollars a week as we are now in social isolation or in spending hundreds of billions on new ventilators and building hospitals, as we could do and probably should do in the interim, we could spend a fraction of that money just flooding the country with rapid tests. Test, 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 test. Singapore and South Korea have done a similar thing, and they are the best performers In this pandemic Mm -hmm. and the idea there is you return to some semblance of normal life no more large sporting events or things like that Um, huge events that give us a grand opportunity for infection you can go to work you can go to school you can go to the pub occasionally things like that and just be careful but we test constantly and the second someone tests positive you quarantine them you test all their contacts And the ones that test positive, quarantine them quickly as well. And you keep on testing them repeatedly. So Mm -hmm. with the power of testing, there is uh, a potential for something resemble normalcy. And had that been done early on, uh, I think we'd be in a much better shape. So New Zealand gives me hope.
0: Okay. Uh, Yes, I heard New Zealand's in lockdown. But I just want to go back to that Singapore because I've heard, you know, some of those uh, Southeast Asia or those Asian countries, because they have faced these pandemic scares in the past it's more in their um dialogue um in their medical system dialogue and they've created or built new hospitals that are suited more to something like this actually happening whereas here in north america it's like so foreign people can't even wrap their minds around taking responsibility for their 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 loved ones
1: it, it, it could be true. I mean, I, I don't make any comments about you know uh, cultural differences or things sure. like that. There are some political differences that may come into play. For example, we have a more individualistic society that celebrates my freedom to choose to be outside of how I want to take that risk versus a more communal mentality which says, no, you're, you have responsibility to the group, things mm-hmm. like that. I will say that uh, I'll, I'll plug myself for a second. Yeah. Fifteen years ago, I wrote a paper Predicting a pandemic of this nature, yes. but I wasn't the only one there are other epidemiologists who saw this coming as well it's mm. uh, It was going to come eventually with a combination of globalization and a blase Attitude towards public health, but to look at Singapore and South Korea They have shown us the path that we can take with testing yeah. and New Zealand. I'm, I'm very pleased with New Zealand They've only got something over 100 cases. but They were under full lockdown immediately. Okay. They've got a very good chance in my opinion of controlling this in okay. their country you know and we've got a good chance too like i think uh, i'm very impressed in particular by ottawa public health i live in ottawa i think you do as well yeah, yeah. and and we've done a very good job in my opinion of, of controlling this of getting the message out of advocating for the right policies canada as a whole is is better off than a lot of other countries deeply worried about the usa deeply yes. worried yes. A- yes and i think they are going to be the epicenter of this pandemic by the end of this week Yes. Uh, and I, I looked at some data this morning that, frankly, terrified me about the American case. I don't see their, them plateauing any time the next uh, next little bit, and their doubling time is about uh, like four days as well. So, um, to get back to on point, uh, you start talking about the blog post and likely outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So we have the, we have the three strategies of. Let it burn, yep. right? Uh, which we don't want to do. We have the, the previous strategy of mitigation. I think now we seem to have moved into suppression with the announcement of the emergency in Ontario of all businesses closing. Yes. That to me is the right thing to do. And if we do that, I believe it'll take about two months to get it to a simmering boil of cases that are easily manageable and almost not newsworthy. Yep. Yeah. and all these are based on a buttload of assumptions right? yes, these assumptions include you know the the, the reproduction number the um, the time it takes to recover um, the actual number of existing cases by the way when the news report that we have X number of cases multiply that by anything from 50 to 200
0: I was gonna That's- ask you that question because yeah. I have some friends who have symptoms and they will not test them and it's it's, it's yeah. very interesting who they're testing and why. Like.
1: Okay, so the reason that we're not testing everybody is that we don't have enough tests right now. Gotcha. Are we going to save that for you know, the people that we kind of really suspect have it and need to have special uh, interventions for? Yeah. Uh, and frankly, if you are a mild case and you test positive, you go in isolation. If you think you have it and you're not tested, you go in isolation. So it almost doesn't matter if we test you, just go in isolation.
0: Absolutely, I, I fully hear that. I just feel like it—it it makes this seem like it's not that big of a deal. But I really like you. So you said take the number and multiply it by how much?
1: Anywhere from fifty to two hundred, possibly higher. Okay. So fifty was the number that um, the modeling from China was kind of based on. Okay. And then the Italian data kind of blew that out of the water. So, mm-hmm. and that's that's based on. Um, how many tests your society is doing and how accurate that testing is Mm -hmm. so in ottawa we're actually doing you know a a fairly goodly number of tests compared to other countries and other cities so i would say the multiplier here is probably like 70 so take um number of court cases they report multiply it by 70 and that's the number of people probably walking around again don't don't take that to the bank That's, that's a moving target that changes every day um, and there are certain, you know, graphical techniques we could do to estimate the actual number of cases happening. And, you know, a short way of explaining how that works is we look at the people who present to us with a case and we ask them, when did your symptoms first arrive? And We go backwards in time and we mark you as a case like five days ago, not today. And we do it for everybody. And we add them all up and realize, oh my God, I detected you today. But that means since five days ago when you showed up, there are actually like this number of cases. So it's an interesting little arithmetic uh, exercise. Um, The point being that the case number may seem low. It's not that low. It's incredibly high. It's going to get very high. And we shouldn't be too afraid of that. Because remember, the vast majority of people will barely, not barely feel it, but will be fine. Yes. They'll suffer, you know, for a couple of weeks, wake up with a headache and realize, oh, I guess I have that COVID thing. It's just that percentage that get hospitalized is the problem we care about. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I was reading an article this morning about a family of seven in New Jersey who had dinner and they all got this COVID-19 and three of them died. Okay? Three really? out of seven died. Uh, and so for them, the proportion was much higher. Of course. That's because of underlying conditions and we're not sure which underlying conditions predispose us to hospitalization and death the chinese evidence suggests it was older people particularly the men who were smokers Ah. the italian data is not that clear a lot of middle-aged people are dying and maybe the smoking and maybe something else the american data will probably show us its obesity and diabetes other factors yes we should be afraid of that because the canadian population also is obese and, and has diabetes. Yes. So just because you're young, don't feel, uh, don't feel protected. Um, again, I, I, I waffle between panic mode and calming mode. Mm-hmm. I feel the need to scare people into understanding the extent of this so they behave properly, but also understanding that this is a societal, structural issue, in my opinion, more so than a straight-on biological threat.
0: Abs- yeah, so, I, I concur and that we can take responsibility for ourselves here a little bit. Like, we absolutely. need to take that responsibility on. I mean, okay, so we talk about this herd immunity. So eventually, everyone's going to get it. But if we are in lockdown for two months, um, get to that simmering boil, then what?
1: Then you just manage it. The- okay, so um, in an ideal scenario, yes, if we get to the simmering boil, then you deploy... Testing and public health like you've never seen before. Yeah. And you do what you should have done in the first case, which is, you know, just isolate, test, quarantine, and don't worry about feelings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Find those people and quarantine them. Right? In absence of that full deployment of extreme public health measures, what will happen likely based on most of the models, is that it will come back in a couple of months. Yeah. So as the existing cases that are simmering infect other people and so forth. And because people are aware of it now, it'll come back more slowly, but it'll come back. Probably, you know, end of summer or so. Okay. You know, and and then the peaks go up again, and we isolate.
0: And we go in lockdown again. And... Lockdown.
1: Yeah. Rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat for two years until really? we have the vaccine. Yep. So so when I say this might be the new normal, this rolling waves of isolation and normalcy will be, you know, the new normal, unless we deploy again, public health measures like you've never seen before. And we can do that. Absolutely, we can do that.
0: And do you feel as though Canada is on the way to making those decisions?
1: I think so. I mean, I there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Yes. Uh, negotiations with other countries, uh, procuring the right equipment, um, getting the tests. Everybody wants the test now, right? Uh, everybody wants the PPE, the personal protective equipment. And so there's a, a bit of a race internationally to see which countries can get them. But I'm I'm pleased that Canada's taking us seriously. I, I'm pleased that this is a full full court press. I'm pleased it hasn't been politicized that much. Yeah. I'm so pleased with most of the public reaction people are so positive looking for it brings a tear to my eye almost looking at the fun yeah. things people are doing I've, yeah. I have a friend for example who who's organized her kids to call other kids on their birthdays to, to sing them happy birthday simple things like that kids yes. in lockdown yes. or you've got neighborhoods where uh, scavenger hunts are being organized for, for kids who are in lockdown they, they walk along the street and see things on the window and play a game that way you know little things like that everyone is, is doing their part and it, it fills me with, with joy and a little bit of a little bit of pride. And I think I, I'm, a, I'm a ridiculous optimist. You know, I think <laughs> this is kind of like our World War II wartime moment. You'll see uh, the best of us come forward.
0: I, I have to agree. I mean, I actually felt um, a big shift in my perspective on this just with Sophie Trudeau. So our prime minister's wife, who was di- or was um, tested positive and they went into lockdown and they kind of gave an example. They showed an example of what to do. In my opinion, I, th- I felt that was very impactful. Now, I am seeing in the U.S. and I'm reading stuff that uh, people are arguing that lockdown and staying home is too hard on the on the economy and social fabric. And that what we should have that we should take a more nu- nuanced approach, like such as protect the vulnerable and let the others work it out.
1: I've heard that argument before and here's the problem with that we we don't know who the vulnerable are
0: sure okay
1: you know we thought it was the elderly it's not the elderly we thought it was the you know the immunocompromised it's not just them we thought the young were protected no a lot of young people are dying or being hospitalized at least have you ever vaped in your life ever smoked marijuana have you ever insulted your lung tissue in any capacity you probably have some degree of vulnerability are you any any kind of medication you've got some degree of vulnerability Right? A lot of us don't even know how vulnerable we are. Yes. So deciding on um, on who is vulnerable is the first barrier to that to that approach. The second barrier is, okay, so we decide to quarantine the vulnerable and let it run rampant through all the 20 year olds who aren't vulnerable who are now running society. It's still going to have a death rate. So given the size of the population we're letting it run rampant through, you're going to let a fairly large number of people die uh, on mass. Yeah. So uh, to me, that's not a viable strategy. Not, not, not even to say that. How do you quarantine the vulnerable? (laughs) Do you you build a big pen somewhere and none of it them out there? I don't know how this even works. So uh, that's not a viable um, approach, in my opinion.
0: It seems to me like there's a lot of politics going on. um, And in like, and the U.S. is a big influencer in my life. I mean, I follow a lot of American influencers on social medias, and it's almost as though bending the curve in the U.S. in some of those bigger cities is almost impossible right now. Like, it is.
1: It's not impossible. Nothing's impossible. Nothing's impossible. It, it's, no, I mean, it just takes political will. Look, look, look at wartime America. In in, the, in in under two years, they tasked the entire uh, industrial sector to build tanks and airplanes and bombs at a scale unimaginable. Yeah. I ever watched those old black and white documentaries about World War II. The sky was blacked out with with fleets of planes, things like that, all cranked out by American factories. That's what dragged them out of the depression gotcha. with any you know FDR policies. So there is the capacity in, in North America and any. Modernized country to retask our industries and our attitudes to uh, to address this crisis in ways we can't even imagine. I keep saying the words the awesome power of civilization's biotechnology sector. We have not seen it express itself fully yet. It can be done. You know, all it takes is political will, and we're seeing now the appropriate leaders step up. Like um, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who I'm a big fan of, has shown leadership in the deepest possible way. Right, by uh, communicating appropriately to the population even to the children the special children's press conference um announcing the lockdown in the right time yeah early enough you know uh and the, the, the point you made about the economic impacts is well taken but then my pushback is going to be um ha, can you imagine the economic impact of hundreds of thousands of dead canadians within a two-month span yeah. you know that's That will have its own kind of impact as well. Money can be remade. Yeah. Money isn't even real. It's not like, you know, some leading art socialist now, but it's what people are real. Suffering is real. So what's the point of having wealth in a society if we don't deploy that wealth when it's needed, as in now?
0: I got you. Okay, so I have one question that's kind of unrelated, but related, and you may have answered it already, but I just wanted to be clear because we look at, the history of the Spanish flu and H1N1 or swine flu. And then there was like the avian flu and all these flus that killed a lot of people. Why is this one different? Why is this different? Why didn't this lockdown happen?
1: Right. So it's different for a couple of reasons. First off, it's a coronavirus. So coronaviruses aren't, didn't grow up with humanity. They grow up with other animals. Influenza viruses grew up with humanity. And there are, I think, six coronavirus species that we know about that can infect humans. Uh, There's SARS, the first SARS from 15 years ago. Um, There are four of them, I think, are the common cold. And this is the latest one. And the thing about uh, coronaviruses is when they do infect us, they hit us pretty hard at first. But then as the generations progress, we get used to them. Here's how a virus works. A virus finds its way into your cells by attaching to a receptor on the outside of the cell that allows it into the cell. Not all the viruses fit well. That's why a virus that's used to another species often doesn't fit with a human cell. This one mutated and found a way to fit with our cell, much like the first SARS did. This one fits really well, though. I mean, really Mm -hmm. well. That's one of the astonishing parts of it. And once it gets in... It pre- reprograms the factories inside your cell to make more copies of it, because that's its goal. Right. That's the goal of every living thing, even though a virus might not be a living thing. That's another discussion entirely. But that's its goal. So the, because it fits so well into our cells, it really is infectious. It infects us quite easily with... I think a, a smaller viral load that would otherwise take. The original SARS required a larger assault on your body to, to find its way into your cells. This one doesn't take as much effort. Then there's the idea of it being infectious before you're symptomatic. Yes. So it spreads faster. In essence, it's the infectiousness that makes this so different. Everyone can get it so fast, much like the common cold, but worse. And it's slightly higher Case fatality rate is slightly higher lethality. That combination wreaks havoc at the population level. That's what people don't really get.
0: No, just, yeah, I did oh, not. So I did not like, get that. I did not get 2% that. Two
1: percent are going to die. Yeah, it's not a big deal. I'm, I know, mm-hmm. but it's not a an individual threat. It's a population threat thing. Yeah, it can stagger economies. It's not going to bring down civilization. It may bankrupt civilization. Yeah. And, and before this is over, there's a really good chance before this is over, every one of us is going to know someone who died of it.
0: Interesting. Right? Yes. Yes.
1: So this is, this is a sobering thought. And this is one of the reasons I'm not entirely over my depression from earlier this week, but <laughs> my loved ones as well. Yes. Uh, with, if in two years, this is hit 70% of the population, pretty much everyone will lose somebody, you know? So, um, at the same time, at the same time, I am also uh, a grand supporter of civilization's biotechnology sector and its ability to develop therapies and vaccines and treatments and so forth. So um, I'm seeing excellent data yeah. on new therapies um, being trialed in various places. So that case fatality rate is coming down. So other things that affect the case fatality rate, it's it's. Qualities of the disease obviously make it fatal qualities of the population make it fatal or not fatal If you're um, a robust healthy person you're less likely to die Um, But also uh, the testing procedures So keep in mind because we we haven't done as many tests as we could or should The denominator is not as big as it could or should be Let's think of that for a second we, we only know about the ones we've tested. As you mentioned, there are a lot of people out there who are sick and don't know it, maybe got over it already, had mild cases, and don't even know. If we included those people in the denominator, the, the case fatality rate drops down dramatically. Yeah. From like 2% down to like less than 1% maybe. So don't be too afraid. Be a little afraid. But don't be overly afraid. Right. Remember, this is a population issue. This is not an individual assault issue.
0: So, so biggest takeaways here. This, like, what what are some of the biggest? My takeaways? big
1: takeaway. My big takeaway is, a this is the new normal, probably, yeah. probably. You know, un- unless we pr- pursue um, suppression techniques followed by public health interventions at a wide scale, um, or unless I mean other. Before I get to other takeaways, there other things might happen. For example, there are some new data I looked at this morning around. Um, the virus's uh, infectivity diminishing in hot weather okay. by about one percent for every temperature, every uh, degree of temperature. So that's a that's a good sign, you know. And the rate of mutation may save us or make it worse. Um, so every virus is always mutating. In yes. fact, the species of virus that they saw in Italy. I've seen some data suggest it's not the same as that was seen in China, so it's mutating as it's moving around the world. So the Spanish flu may have mutated itself into irrelevance. That may have been how it went away. This one might do the same thing. SARS also mutated. SARS one mutated significantly into a, a less lethal version. So that's a possibility too. But the the big takeaway for me is always this. Well, two takeaways. Yeah. One, this is not the apocalypse. Okay. Okay? yeah, (laughs) it's not an extinction level event. It's it's not the end of days. What it is, is it's a pandemic that's pretty bad. Um, Also, this is not necessarily a health crisis. It's a health systems crisis. Therefore, we can manage it. Health systems are the results of management, leadership, preparation and investment. Simple as that.
0: So if you're listening to this show right now if one of the if any of our viewers or listeners are tuned in what can they do what is your biggest
1: like he- head shake well, obviously, tip? obviously it's hard to do nothing but the best thing you can do right now is, is buckle down do nothing yeah like I was I was walking the dog just now and you know someone came up to chat with me I was going to touch me like, what are you doing just get away from me you know <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, yeah, I know. So, uh, yeah. No, so don't do stupid things like that. Just stay away. Mm-hmm. There's a meme going around that your grandparents were asked to go to war. You're being asked to stay home and watch TV. That's the least you can do. Yeah, yeah I've seen so that. So you can do that. You can, you can stay informed and don't spread conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. I've seen so many conspiracy theories about this escaping for a lab or being hoisted upon us by the Chinese to destroy our economies and stuff. It's not helpful. Mm-hmm. You no. Know? Be positive. Help each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's Actually, I heard another epidemiologist say this on an interview, and I was so touched when he said this. The message should always be, and and here it really is, take care of each other. Mm -hmm. You know, like you see someone who is isolated and getting depressed, reach out to them with a phone call. You see an elderly person who can't go shopping, go shopping for them. Mm -hmm. Take care of each other. Be Mm -hmm. positive. This is a grand opportunity to show our heroism, at a level that no other generation has ever had before. We all grew up on movies hoping to be heroes one day. There's a special kind of heroism at at play here. The heroism of caring about our society and our public and our vulnerable, simply by doing nothing and expressing caring sentiments. It ain't that hard, but we can be heroic. So I say we take advantage of this opportunity. It will never come again to be as one as a species against an inhuman foe. Being called to war against another nation is a little amoral because you're being asked to, to kill people. Yeah. This you're being asked to save people en masse by simply being good. Be a good person.
0: Yes. It's almost a
1: test by the cosmos to see how good can we be.
0: Yes, and make good choices and listen. Yeah. Listen to what people are saying and the advice, you know, that stay home. I love that stay home message right now. It's uh, basically my favorite. And that's what I've been doing. Today is actually day nine of my lockdown. I am I am Fully isolated. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you so much. I I don't have any more questions. Is there anything else that we're missing here?
1: uh, Not at all. Thank you for for inviting me on. It's been uh, a joy.
0: Yes, and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for spreading this message and keep writing articles. I will be reading them. (laughs) I will post the article in the show notes that hooked me, the COVID-19, what's the end game? Thank you. Have a beautiful day. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye. Wow. I don't know about you, but I felt that was super informative. Whether we like it or not, we can all take responsibility for ourselves and others by staying home. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Ray Dionandon for taking the time to share his expertise as an epidemiologist with us today. You can find his article titled COVID-19, the Endgame" in the show notes as well as other links to connect with him and read some of his more up-to-date work. Also, here's a friendly reminder to support the show in any way you can. You can donate to my Patreon page, screenshot and share on your social, or subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all so much for listening. Have the best day, everyone. Until next time.